2 Samuel chapter 11. And this morning's sermon title is, When the Great Have Fallen. We're going to talk about the heaviness of the story of David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read the whole chapter. You okay with that? This is church. Doesn't matter, I have the microphone anyway, so I'm just going to read it. (laughs) 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read the text and I'm going to pray and just ask that through even the, the heaviness of this text that we would actually be changed, that we would actually be transformed. Beginning in verse one. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house And a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go to his house. Now when they told David, saying Uriah did not go to his house, David said to Uriah, how have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem until the next day. And David called him and he ate and drank before him and made him drunk And in the evening went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. And so it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubbasheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? And then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we passed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. And so some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is also dead. Then David sent to the mess, said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as the other. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it. And so encourage him. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. And she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask in this moment 
that you would open our hearts to hear and to receive all of the conviction, the warnings, as well as the encouragement that you would have for us as we read this story and seek to understand what it is that you want to say to our hearts as we look at David, as we look at Bathsheba, as we look at the terrible choices of David. God, I pray that none of us this morning would think, oh, I would never do such things. I pray rather that we would humble ourselves before you and say, God, keep me in the path of righteousness for your namesake. And if there are those just weighed down and condemned by sin, God, would you show us so clearly how it is that you deal with our sin so that we all might be changed, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. It was one of the most scandalous moments in the ancient Middle East. This great king of Israel who fought giants and battled enemies was found involved in intrigue, murder, and a terrible affair. The story is well known to most of us. But my question for myself and for you today is how did this all happen? How is it that someone who rose to such great heights could could fall so tragically? See, the reason this is important is because I think our tendency as we look out in the world is we separate people into categories of good people and bad people. Good people are wise, righteous people, and they're always going to generally make the good decisions. Oh, but then there's all the, the bad people, and they're the ones that make the stupid, unwise, sinful decisions. So we tend to have this, this category, and that's how we look at, at people until someone you know has made bad choices, a family member, a friend or until you yourself have watched your own bad choices. And all of a sudden, those nice, neat little categories begin to crumble. And I suggest that that is a good thing. Because the Bible says so clearly that the same kernel of sin lies within us all, and therefore all of us are in need of redemption. In the Bible, there's not good people and bad people. There's fallen people and saved people. We are all in need of the grace of God. We may not choose to make the same wrong decisions on the surface, but the fundamental problem is always the same. I say that because as we've looked through our time in the lives of King Saul and King David, it would be very easy to look at Saul and say, he's an idiot, he made terrible choices, but oh, look at David, David's the golden boy. And indeed, we have seen David at some of his best moments glorious moments in which we're given a very glimpse into the heart of God. But today we look at his darkest moments. Two names come to mind when you think of David, Goliath and Bathsheba. One is a great triumph. The other is a great defeat. King David, we've seen him fight many battles and face many enemies, but now here David's greatest enemy is himself. What began as a lustful moment develops into an enormous sex and murder crime. And yet what I've been trying to point out several times in this series is that those moments are rarely isolated incidents. They are a culmination of choices, many choices. And it's for that reason that this story sobers me. And it should sober you because this can happen to you. It may not look exactly the same, but these types of things can happen to you. And if you don't believe that, then you're already deceived. So I'd like to accomplish two things today. I would like to alarm you, and I would like to encourage you. But first, let me freak you out. (laughs) Can I do that? Dr. Howard Hendricks once said, Satan will lie in the weeds for 40 years to entrap one of God's servants. He is patient, and he will wait, and he will watch for just the right moment. A moment that will do greater damage to the kingdom of God. The devil doesn't make us do anything. 
But the devil seeks to entrap us and the devil seeks to ensnare us. Now, let's be honest, the struggle with sin is a reality for us all. And there are times that we will fall, but how far and for how long depends on whether or not we are willing to listen to the voice of God. And so this passage serves as both a warning and a model. It warns us of how a great fall can happen, but it is also a model showing us what we are to do if and when it does. So this story is not meant to leave you in the dark. It's meant to push you into the light. But first we need to happen. How did this all happen? Well, like many sins, the answer is gradually. We know very little of Bathsheba, but in David we see a progression. And we would do well to learn from it. Because you and I, we can grow dull without knowing it. You can go through seasons where you you think you're just like crushing it in your spiritual life, and yet all the while you're compromising in all these, these other areas. See, the thing I've noticed over the years is the thing about sin is that it rarely feels like sin when you're doing it. On that spring day, David probably didn't feel like a sinner. He probably felt like a lover. So how how did this happen? Well, in David's sin, we find four steps to a great fall. You know you are headed for a fall when, first of all, you withdraw from the front line of responsibility. Notice the author of this narrative makes it very clear to us in the springtime, the time when who was supposed to go out to battle? Kings were supposed to go out to battle. David stayed home. David stayed home. Delegation can be a good thing. Sometimes in life, maybe there's certain, you know, challenges, responsibilities that you just can't do in life and in the church. And therefore, it is a good thing to help delegate those things to other people. It's a good thing. But we must never delegate our own spiritual responsibility. We must never outsource our relationship to God, to others. No, at the end of the day, nobody else can make decisions for me. My wife, my family are alongside me. They can encourage me. They can speak into my life. The the other pastors in my life, you, my, my brothers and sisters, you can help, you can encourage, you can rebuke, you can convince, you can exhort. But at the end of the day, you cannot make a decision for me. That is a responsibility that I have before God with my own life and with everything that is entrusted before me. And friends, the same is true for you. You can never outsource your relationship with God. And it is so easy to do so. Hey, you know, I haven't prayed or I'm not reading my Bible, but you can do that for me, right? Like, can you just pray for me this week because I'm not praying, you know, for myself. You can do that. See, that's what's happening here with David. He had a role, he had a responsibility, and yet he's just delegating it. Like, I'm the king, everything's fine. I don't really need to go to the front line of responsibility anymore. I can send other people there, but it was the occasion When he was supposed to be leading his own soldiers to battle, he was leading one of his own soldiers' wives to bed. It all begins here. His lack of self-control would begin to bring ruin to many other lives. Now listen, there are some, you know, the, the... appearance of desires in your own heart, you may or may not be responsible for. Like with David, very strong sexual or romantic desires. Many many of us may, may share them. You may or may not choose these things or fill in the blank with another particular desire. You may not choose these things, but you do choose what they mean to you. And you do choose how you act upon them. See, I think this is important to say because we live in a culture that tells you that if you desire it, you should do it. Well, I want something, so therefore I I should go ahead and do it. I I read a while back about a man who left his wife, wonderful wife, left his wife for another person. And when the newspaper, it wasn't Christian or religious or anything, and when the the interviewer was asking this man, well, why did you leave your wife for this, this woman who was actually underage, by the way, that's why the article was written. Why did you do it? He said, well, because my heart told me. Because I, I, I desired. And, and our culture says, well, that's the trump card. The Bible tells us a different story. 
The Bible tells us, and I love how true and real and honest the Bible is. It says, you will live your life with conflicting desires. In fact, there is a battle raging in you right now. Paul the Apostle says that it's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. The Apostle Peter says that some of your desires actually make war against your soul. How's that for warning language? We need to wake up and we need to listen. Self-control, self-restraint, these are the manifestations of the fact that the Holy Spirit is in your life. Isn't self-control one of the many fruits of the Spirit? We must never take off the armor of God. How often is it a temptation for us, especially if we've had like a good month or a good year? You're like, man, I was praying so much. I went on retreats. I went on a weekend of silence and solitude. Like, oh, 2014 was so good. So therefore, in 2015, eh, I could take off the old helmet of salvation. Breastplate of righteousness, another time. Like, we just get in that place where we think we can just, like, take off our responsibility. And the Bible says, no, never. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it for a perishable wreath, but we for an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control left after preaching to others, I myself should become disqualified. We might read that and think, Paul, you know, so radical. Yes. That's how important this is. Paul is saying that just like athletes train because it matters what they're involved in, Paul is saying what you're involved in, it matters. We're talking about your soul and other people's soul. Like this stuff matters. So run in such a way that you might pursue the prize. Now, it might be that some of you, You're more mature, you're more seasoned, you've been around the Christian block, as it were. Some of you have been Christians for decades, and you might be tempted to think, well, everything's been going well for this many years. I think it's now time to relax. Don't be fooled. Look at the life of David. He wasn't young and single anymore. It was later in his life that this happened. We must never be fooled. Do not withdraw from the front line of your responsibility. For if you continue down this path, you may end up finding yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, which is exactly what happened. There David's going on his midnight stroll, should have been out at battle. He deferred. He, he, he outsourced his responsibility. He says, well, I'm a king. I don't really need to be there. And so he's just got this idle time. He's strolling and he sees this woman bathing on the top of the roof. And I want to say this, that moment was not the cause of David's sin. It was the opportunity for David's sin. David couldn't have just said, well, it was there. I had no choice. No, 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 no. See, we tend to blame shift when it comes to sin and our own temptation. Well, it was them and it was them and they looked good or that looked good. Or just like back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, like, well, she did this. Well, he did that. And God, you did this. Notice this midnight moment was not the cause of David's sin. It was the opportunity for David's sin. And when we delegate our spiritual responsibility, we open a door to sin's opportunity. And you know you're headed to a fall when you ignore the warning signals. Notice verse three. This, I believe, is the greatest turning point in the story. Because at verse three, it all could have ended. It all could have ended. What was the warning shot for David? In verse three, David inquired, who is that woman? And the one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In that moment, David should have heard the word wife and it should have ended there. He should have received this news as a warning. And the fact that it was one of his own soldiers but he didn't. And the Bible gives us this and many other examples of what happens when we don't listen to all the warning signs and we fail to take up that responsibility. In fact, we find that all throughout the Bible, speaking of the failures, not just in David's life, but all of Israel, listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, these things happened to them 
as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You know what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying that you will never be in a situation where your only decision is to sin. You will never be in that place where the only option you had, well, God, I was there and the only way out was sinning. Some of us have probably said that. There was no other option. It was option A, sin. That was it. And yet God, through Paul, is saying so clearly here, there will always be a way of escape, and that way of escape is the truth of Jesus Christ. But we must take it. We must watch. We must listen to the warning signs, like, like the check engine light, you know, kind of coming on your, your, your dashboard in your car. We need to listen. And yet David ignored all the warnings and every way of escape. And that led to the next step. He abused his privilege and power. In verse four, in fact, though David could have ended the temptation here, he puts himself in deeper. And the key word in this whole passage is the word send. Did you notice how many times it appears in the entire chapter? David sent, he sent out people to help him do what he wanted doing. And to send for Bathsheba, think about what's happening in that moment. David was already committing adultery with Bathsheba in his own heart. David was given power as a king to serve his kingdom, but now here we see him using it to serve himself. And I just have to say that it is a dangerous thing to be self-reliant and self-indulgent. David at this point in life was probably used to getting what he wanted, used to getting his way. And therefore, his, the, the influence that he had and the resources that he had, he's using it all to serve himself. Well, I'm king, I have servants, they do my will, I want this woman, therefore, go do my bidding. It is a dangerous thing to be self-reliant and self-indulgent. You get so used to just indulging yourself and saying yes to all of your desires that it might seem absurd that anyone would deny you. I've spoken with even people claiming the name of Christ who oftentimes are just shocked that God would actually tell them to deny themselves. I actually had someone tell me exactly that. God wants me to be happy. He would never ask me to deny myself. I'm like, that's interesting because that's exactly what Jesus Christ said. (laughs) It couldn't be more clear. Deny yourself, die, pick up your cross and follow after me. Like, "Eh, I think it's a metaphor. Yes, it's a metaphor for you dying, denying yourself and following after Christ. That is the metaphor. That's what it means. This is what we are called to. The the privilege of power that we have is to to serve other people, not ourselves. David had strong desires. And indeed, as the story does begin with a sexual encounter, we just have to acknowledge that sex is a powerful thing. There are many other ways in which we can sin. We can sin through, through greed and, and lying and cheating in other ways. But, but here, it's about this romantic and sexual affair. And it is powerful. It is designed by God to cement the bond in a marriage relationship. But outside of it, it violates God's intent and and purpose. That is why the Bible is so clear about this. Yet David not only ignores the warnings, he uses his own power to get his way. And after the affair, he's informed of Bathsheba's pregnancy. Now you would just think, like if anything's gonna get David's attention to just stop going down this path, it would be this moment when he gets the news, like she's pregnant. But he doesn't. And that leads to the fourth step. You go into damage control mode. And that's really what the rest of the chapter is about. In this moment, David could have just confessed it, owned it, and dealt with it. But like many of us have done, maybe not on this scale, but in many other ways, you and I know what it's like when we go into damage control mode. 
We want to minimize it. We don't want people to find out. We don't want people to hear about it. We want to spin it. We want to like say all these different things here. David, in all these conversations, he is confronted with the choice of either admitting his sin or justifying his sin. But one thing is clear. Someone has to die. But better Uriah, David thinks. Rather than admitting that he has committed a sin worthy of death, he puts someone else to death. And church, that is what sin always wants. Sin brings forth death in your own life and in the lives of others. That is what Satan wants. Isn't that what Jesus said about Satan? He came to what? Rob, kill, and destroy. Satan will roll out the red carpet for you, but do not mistake it. It is a path to destruction. That's what sin wants. Damage control. While always seeking to lessen the pain to yourself, you always bring pain to other people. And that's what David's doing. He's saying, well, you know, I, I want, you to, want you to write this letter. And we try to justify it with, with all these like romantic notions. Like God wants me to have what I want. Or, well, maybe you've heard this one. Well, I see the Bible a little differently. Oh, I have heard that so many times, especially in Los Angeles, if I can just confess. In fact, I remember in the, in the first year and a half of our church, we just started to grow. And there was this woman in our church who was very passionate. And she wrote me this long letter saying, I do not think that it is sinful at all to have sex outside of marriage. And you know, it's funny. Everybody becomes a Bible scholar when you talk about sex and money. You ever notice that? Like people that never would even study original languages, all of a sudden you say, hey, sexual sin is wrong. And they're like, well, I mean, what does the Hebrew mean? Like, isn't it a nuanced term? Nope. No nuance about it. You should have seen this email. It's like, the Hebrew word, means this. And so it doesn't necessarily, I'm like, are you insane? There is no other interpretation possible. It is as clear as day that this is a sin. There's no human way that God could have made it more clear than to say this is a sin. But yet that occasion, like many others, just shows that we are so good at trying to minimize and justify and explain away, like even using Christian language. Well, God wants to bless me. And so I saw this extramarital relationship as a blessing. No, it is not. The Bible is so clear. Our opinions, listen, never changes the truth. You can have all the opinions you want. It does not change the truth. And as a result of David going into damage control, Uriah was sent into battle with his own death sentence in his hand. The innocent that day died for the guilty. For some time, nothing happens. And it seems almost as if David got away with it. I don't know what was going on in David's interior life. Did he never think about it? Did he think about it sometimes? Did he just think, well, nothing's happening, so I guess it's good. And sometimes we think like that. We like get away with stuff and a few weeks have gone by and like, well, God doesn't really, he might've cared about it three weeks ago, but three weeks have passed and God's like, I'm over it. Or maybe some people say, well, I'm, I'm living this way. I'm ignoring the warning shots, but there's no lightning bolt from, from heaven. So, I mean, God must be okay with it because after all, nothing's happened. Let me say this as clear as it can be said. Never mistake God's silence for his approval. Never mistake God's silence for his approval. If anything, it is a season in which God is allowing for you to come to your senses, for me to come to my senses regarding any sin that we might have in our lives. We must listen. And in David, we see the progressive nature of sin. Notice David moves from encountering temptation to then pursuing temptation to then embracing temptation. And though our sin might look different than David's, that's how it always goes. You encounter a moment of temptation, but then you have a decision to make. You have a choice to make. What will it be? I want all of us just to, I want us to take this to heart. I know what it's like in my own life 
especially before I came to Christ, I made so many bad decisions. And I remember key moments. At the time, I didn't know it was the Spirit of God. But I remember key moments where there was this thing called conviction happening. I didn't have a phraseology for it. And I hardened my heart and said, no, there's something not right about that. No, I'm going to do it anyway. And just like callous, like another layer just went over my heart and over my heart. The sad truth is, even as followers of Christ, the same thing can happen. And that's why you find the warnings all across scripture. Like if today you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart, the book of Hebrews says. So here's what I do. I don't put anything past myself. That's my little secret. I just, there are seasons in my life where I'd look at other people and be like, oh, how, I would never. And you're around other people like, can you believe they looked at pornography? I'm like, oh my goodness, like how? Can you believe they cheated? Can you believe they lied? Like, oh, I would never. But now I'm like, oh. Yeah, when I'm honest and I look into my heart, I see the evil that's there. Like, yeah, I could see it going that way. I just don't put anything past myself. Listen, we should never say, I would never do such a thing. We should say, but for the grace of God. But for the grace of God, I wouldn't. By the grace of God, I wouldn't do such a thing. That should be our language in the church. That's why we need to learn from David. We need to take some advice, even from his wrong decisions. Today, you and I, if we're slacking, we need to take up our responsibilities. We need to invite other people to speak truth into our lives, not isolate ourselves, not just trying to to minimize it. You know, when you meet with friends and family this week, like, you know, just say, hey, I have a tendency to minimize, you know, my, my own sin or my shortcomings. Like, do you see that? Can you speak into my life? We need to come to grips with the truth. And notice this chapter, this whole chapter ends. It's told us this entire story, all these back and forth moments within the conversation. But notice the chapter ends with an intentional contrast between the the way David sees himself and the way that God sees him. And so the whole story ends with that sobering sentence in verse 27. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of God of the Lord. This is, this is revealing because it really gets to the heart of the matter for David and at the heart of the matter for you and I when it comes to our own sin. What is behind it all? What does all this reveal? What, what is, to phrase it another way, what's the sin underneath the sin? Of course, for David, there was murder and there was adultery, but what is it that was, was driving David's sin? And I think we're given a hint in the interaction between David and Joab. To Joab, David insists, remember that part? David insists to Joab, Joab, don't let this thing be displeasing to you. And then he minimizes it. You know how it is in battle. One person gets cut down, another person doesn't. You know how it is. And I actually think that that sentence, that phrase is revealing because it really shows that the sin underneath David's sin was pride. It's pride. David saw his word and his view as being above God's and as being above accountability. It was pride. And we even see the seeds of pride that took place and took root earlier in David's life. God's word says, do not multiply wives. Yet David was doing it. It was a pattern in his life. He got so used to it. And so he finally became sermon proof. You know what I'm talking about. When you hear a sermon and it's like speaking to you, but you're like, oh, that's really good for, you know, Joe. Joe really, oh, I'm gonna get the CD after the service. (laughs) Gosh, Joe, I think you really need to hear this, brother. We might even be in a place where we're in church and we don't stop going to church. We're like, you might be down this path today and you're just thinking, oh, yeah, this is so good. Yep, mm, word of God. But you're you're, you're not allowing it to speak to where you are at and what you are doing. This is where David was. But it's not where God wants you and I to be. I mean, this is sobering. What is it that drove David to shield himself and to destroy Uriah? 
could be his love for and his determination to keep his own position. His pride demonstrated in not listening to the word of God. Pride in acting independently of God. This is the very essence of sin. C.S. Lewis, uh, he put it like this. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. For David, this area of romance, sexuality, relationships, and then going into damage control was a difficult area uh, for him, but he didn't fight against it. He went with it. He rebelled against God's word. But I want you to ask right now, because you might say, well, for, you know, that, that was for David, and, and maybe that's not your particular temptation, but I want you to ask, honestly, be honest with yourself, and ultimately be honest before God. What is it for you? What is it for you? Where are you most tempted to ignore God's word? In what area of life are you most tempted to just minimize or ignore or suppress or spin? What area is it for you? Maybe you haven't even gone down that path, but please today acknowledge, like what area is it for you that you're most tempted And it is so good and right for us to ask that question so that we might heed the word of God and recognize our own blind spots so that we can follow God's word. Because listen, God's word is not some just mere code of behavior, but the loving teachings of a father. Your father in heaven loves you and he wants you not only to turn away from sin, he wants you to be near to his heart and it's because he loves you that he warns you. It's because he loves you that he speaks convicting words to your heart. His words don't keep you from life. God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy. He wants you to enjoy life as he has designed it. But like David, we have a tendency not to listen and sometimes we fall. And so then the question is, you might be at the point where saying, you know what, I've done wrong. I've been going down a wrong path or I know someone who has, but now what do I do? Even right now, you might even feel the heaviness of that. Like, okay, yes, I'm done. I'm condemned. I should just like, what what do I do? Or more importantly, what does God do when the great have fallen? We have seen an exchange between David and Bathsheba, David and Uriah, David and Joab. But there's more exchange in the story, and it's between David and God. And we actually find it in the next chapter. Because finally, though some time has passed, and we may in fact succeed for a while in covering up things from others, but we never cover up things from God. So what does God do when we've fallen into this, when we've taken those steps? What does God do? God gets personal. God gets personal. And he did so in David's life through his pastor, and the pastor's name was Nathan. In the next chapter, we're told that though it had been some time, Nathan, who was the prophet in Israel at that time, goes to confront David. And Nathan uses a story. And the story, David gets all worked, about a, worked up about a sermon he thinks is for someone else. Nathan says to David, there was a man who was very poor and all he had was this little ewe lamb and he loved the lamb and, you know, the lamb lived with him. But then there was a very wealthy man who had all this livestock, but he had these friends over for dinner, but didn't want to use any of his own livestock. So he goes to the poor man's life, takes the lamb, slaughters it and feeds his friend. And David says, never. And Nathan says, you are the man. You are the man. Like a flash of lightning. David finally understood that God was getting personal with him. And that's what God does with us. Whatever kind of sin it is, God gets personal. Why? He reveals our sin and he calls for repentance. And we know this because of how David responded. In 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. In this moment, David is now becoming a model. He's showing us that this is repentance. How do we repent? What does that word mean? What does it look like? It means we listen to God's convicting word and we confess without delay and without denial. 
Because usually we do the latter. We delay and we deny. Uh, later. Maybe some of you right now are thinking, uh, yes, I, I get it, but like later, like in two weeks. No, 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 no. Without delay and without denial. He just confesses it. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. It's been said that the whole of the Christian life can be called a lifestyle of repentance, that we are confessing the sins of the heart, the mouth, our, our hands, whatever it is. That God is convicting us so that we might repent. In David's life, there would be consequences. We'll talk about that next week. There would be discipline. And yet, God does the most radical thing. Immediately, once David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Notice, same verse, 2 Samuel 12, 13. And Nathan says to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Wait a minute. Adultery, murder, intrigue, all of this. David says, I've sinned. And immediately Nathan says to David, God has put away your sin. You shall not die. Friends, this is astounding. In a flood of tears, David finds relief. He knew his sin, but in that moment, he also knew God's forgiveness. And I want every one of you to know it well. The sermon's not over yet. I want you to see four truths about God's forgiveness found in that statement, in that statement alone. There are four truths about God's forgiveness that all of us need to know right now, whether, whether you're in that place where you're going down a bad, a, a bad road or you know those who are. We need to know these for our life and God's forgiveness is so often unlike our forgiveness. And the first truth is this, God's forgiveness is full. Notice that statement. He doesn't, God through Nathan didn't say, I forgive some of your sin. I forgive three quarters of your sin, David, but the rest, you know, you got to deal with it. Now, I think that's important to say because that's how many of us actually feel, right? Whenever you hear about forgiveness and you know you're guilty, the tendency for us is to think, well, God like gave me a cosmic Kickstarter for like 70%, but the rest I got to like deal with on my own. God's like, I'm going to forgive a little bit of your sin, but you got to deal with the rest, Tim. That's how many of us feel, but that's not what it says. God's forgiveness is full. Secondly, God's forgiveness is sure. It is a done deal. God does not say, I might forgive your sin. I may forgive your sin. I will think about forgiving your sin. God doesn't say any of that. It says, the Lord has put your sin away. God's forgiveness is full. God's forgiveness is sure. Thirdly, God's forgiveness is immediate. This is unbelievable. God's forgiveness is immediate. There's no delay. There's no like probationary period before he can receive this forgiveness. God does not say eventually the Lord will put away your sin. He says the Lord has put away your sin. And lastly, God's forgiveness is free. He didn't say through the prophet Nathan, if you earn it, the Lord will put your sin away. Doesn't say that. If you pay the cost, God will put away your sin. No. At no cost to us, yet at great cost to himself, his forgiveness is free. It's amazing. But now, the question is, how could God say that? How could God say that? I mean, maybe, maybe you're even here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy's like, there's adultery and abuse and murder and abuse of power and all this. And you're just saying, God's like, forgiven. Like, how how does that make sense? How, How is it that God can say, just, I forgive you for something so great? And maybe some of you have read this story and you struggle with it a bit. Like, I don't do things like David. Like, how could God say something like this? We need to understand two things to grasp this. First of all, all sin is first and foremost against God. God is our creator. Whenever we sin on any kind of social or relational level, our sin is first and foremost theological. It is against God. He is our creator. But secondly, God himself makes the provision of forgiveness for our sin. Now in David's day, that's what the sacrifices of the temple were pointing towards. The sacrifices made in David's time, they could never take away sin. They were pointing towards an ultimate sacrifice. That one day when this statement was pronounced that David, you are forgiven, or so-and-so, you are forgiven, and the sacrifice would be made. They couldn't ever take it all away, but it was pointing towards one day 
there would be a sacrifice that would be made and it would surely take away all of our sin. Now let's just press into that a little more. Let me just use an analogy for a moment. Imagine you're shopping. For some of you, not very hard. You're shopping. You're in a store. You find shoes because shoes are great. And then you don't have any cash money. I don't have cash. What do you do? You pull out your credit card. You pull out your credit card and what happens? You swipe the thing and you walk out of the store. How is that not stealing? You walk into a store, you grab shoes, you flash a little piece of plastic and you get to leave. Like, how is that not stealing? Stealing. Listen, you are free to leave because when you signed that little piece of paper, you tied yourself legally to an agreement. That's what happened, by the way. Some of you are like, it's magic. No, no, no. (laughs) You tied yourself legally to an agreement. That's what you did by which those shoes will be paid for at some date in the future. The shoes are yours, but they are only paid for when the credit card statement comes in and payment from your account is made. Listen, before Jesus Christ, sin, like David's sin, was pronounced forgiven through sacrifices that pointed towards a day when they would be fully and finally paid for. And on Good Friday, the credit card statement came and Jesus wrote the check and rose again and we are forgiven. That is the gospel. Amen? There is no sin so great that Christ's sacrifice is not greater still. And that's what Paul's talking about. And I sometimes wonder in the passage I'm about to read if Paul was thinking of David himself. Listen to what Paul says. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Listen, this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Let me say this as clear as I can. Because of our sin, someone has to die. And the gospel says, Christ died. In fact, Jesus Christ is the true and better Uriah who was not forced but went willingly alone to the front line of the battle with a, de- with a death sentence in his own hand for our sin. On that day, 2,000 years ago at Calvary, the innocent truly died for the guilty that we might be declared righteous, the just for the unjust. That is the good news that brings us to God and cleanses us from our sin. Through David's victories, We've seen that God teaches us much about his power, but it's through David's failure that we are taught about the very foundation of our salvation, that God justly judges sin, yet graciously forgives the sinner. When David was forgiven, and when you and I are forgiven, God's not saying, doesn't matter, sweep it under the rug. He says, no, my son paid for that. God's not saying, oh, you know, I just don't think about it. It doesn't really matter anymore. Oh, yes, it does. But Jesus Christ died for that sin. See, some of you today, you you might have a little bit of pride in your own heart and you look at other people who maybe have done some great sin and then you hear a sermon like this and and you're just thinking, "How how could God forgive them? The answer, for the same reason God forgives you. And you might be saying today, well, how could God forgive me? My sin is so great. The same answer is the cross. Both of us need to understand the cross. To the people saying, how could God forgive those people? Or how could God forgive me? The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. We all come to God through the sacrifice of his son. The only thing that can keep you from this is an unwillingness to confess sin and receive his grace. For it's through our confession that we're laying hold of this forgiveness. This is what David talks about when he's reflecting on this season of his life. Listen to what he says in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away 
through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You might be in the place right now where you're trying to minimize and not acknowledge, but this will just rot you away spiritually. Today is the day to confess. Never minimize your sin. But church, let us also never minimize our savior. Amen? God's forgiveness is sure, it is full, it is immediate, and it is free. We have all sinned, but we can all know forgiveness. We can have a clean start and a new heart through Jesus Christ. You might say today, I've made an utter mess of things. But David confessed, repented, and was forgiven. And when God calls us to repentance, it's as a loving father, not only calling you away from sin, but towards himself. So I just want to say to every one of us today, Dare to believe in the full, sure, immediate, and free forgiveness that God has provided. To do anything less is to minimize what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. I want us to be those people who glory in the cross. It is because of Christ, because it has been paid in full, that that new start can begin now. If others around you have fallen, help them look to Christ. If you have fallen, look to Christ who lifts you up. Do not delay your confession or repentance for one moment so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord through his gracious forgiveness. Amen? Father, I pray right now that none of us would harden our hearts. That we would not go into inner lawyer mode and defend and minimize and spin and blame shift to you or to anyone else. Father, if there be any wicked way in us, may we say... God, we confess. Even if it's the smallest kernels of something that could potentially grow into an enormous type of sin, Lord, may we even now say today, Jesus Christ died for such things. And it is for that reason that I can be forgiven and free. May the devil not rip anyone off here thinking that we have to pay for our own sin, even as though we could pay for our own sin, but may we declare joyfully and confidently that Christ died for all sin. And I pray right now that we'd glory in the gospel by confessing our sin, experiencing the renewing and refreshing presence of your spirit right now as we just come and we don't hold anything back and we don't put on a mask and don't put up walls, but come freely into your presence through your son, Jesus Christ. May we not delay one moment. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.